You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Well, hello, everybody. Good to see you again. I'm hey. back. Hey, Victoria. Oh, yeah. How's it Welcome going? Back, Victoria. It is going great. Excellent. Well, I'm happy Having to be here time. with you guys. And I get to start things off this week. With a pretty cool creature. Uh, and nice. I'm going to talk about frogs. And, Ooh, you know, right. we oh, have a I lot of experience frog. with frogs and toads as naturalists, right? Ask any school child what a frog or toad eats, and they'll probably be able to tell you something. What, what would they say, do you suppose? Bugs! Flies. Flies! Bugs, yeah. yeah. This is largely true. Almost all frogs around the world mainly live on insects and other invertebrates, at least when they're adults. Uh, tadpoles sure. frequently do eat algae and other plant material. And as you know, uh, most frogs actually hunt by ambush. They kind of hide and wait, and their vision highly sensitized to movement. As a naturalist, you get mm -hmm. to work with a lot of toads, usually, sometimes frogs. <laughs> they're pretty um, quick. Yeah, they're... You know, many is the time when I've had a toad snap at my moving finger as if it were an insect. It's yep. so funny. How that happened. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I've even done it on purpose. And, you know, luckily, most, <laughs> most frogs have little to nothing in the way of teeth, so it's not really a big deal. No. Well, the most often, some of them sort of smack you with their tongue, too, you know? It's yeah. Like... <laughs> Weird feeling. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, some larger frogs, such as bullfrogs, will even eat other frogs, birds, mice, bats, so some larger <laughs> right. prey. Basically, if it's alive and it fits in their mouth, they will eat it. You know, so in general, for adult frogs, being a carnivore is the way to go. Sure. Unless, of course, you are Xenohyla truncata, otherwise known as Isaacson's Brazilian tree frog. Okay. Ooh, we've okay, we've cool. missed your pronunciation of Latin yeah. names here and scientific names. Beautiful. You oh, did pretty well in you. my absence. I listened to those episodes. You were doing well. Thank you. I. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> the struggle uh, is real. So Isaacson's Brazilian tree frog is a small. It's about three centimeters long. It's kind of orangish tree frog, uh, and it lives in. Rio de Janeiro state in Brazil. And it lives in a type of very specific coastal forest habitat that's called the Restinga that I had not heard of before. Ooh, okay. And it cool. is the world's only known frugivorous frog. Frugivorous. Ooh, it right. eats fruit? Is fruit. Yeah, it's a fruit-eating frog. Yeah, yeah. What? Uh, there's a frog. That seems like a yeah. should be a tongue twister or something, but it's it's I not. I think it, it is. Feels like it should be. We can make it one. Fruit eating frog. Fruit eating frog. Fruit eating frog. That's hard to say. Feed and, the fruit okay. eating frog. Feed yeah. the yeah. fruit eating. Yep, I'm there. I'm there. Yeah. Wow. Feed the fruit eating Perfect. frog. 
So Feed the this fruit is frog fruit frequently. The <laughs> <laughs> Keep going, Victoria. Well, let's Fantastic. go on, Victoria. Fantastic. <laughs> um, so this is, you know, pretty unusual for a frog to eat any kind of plant right. material. There's one other species of frog in India that is known to sometimes deliberately consume plants, but it eats leaves and flowers and not fruit. Um, there are okay. other frogs that occasionally take in some plant material sort of by accident as they're snapping at sure. insects and stuff. But uh, as for our Brazilian tree frog, fruit makes up a significant chunk of its diet, but it is omnivorous and it also consumes insects. So it's not like it's subsisting entirely on fruit, but it, it's a oh, okay. big part of its diet. Uh, however, up until recently, this behavior around what it eats was only inferred by looking at dead frog stomach contents. Oh, oh I thought you were going to say poop, but okay. No, well, <laughs> they've also looked at the poop, but since they, they you know, they'd never actually, that. yeah, they'd never actually been seen in the wild eating fruit. So hmm. recently, some... Brazilian scientists decided to do some field research on these frogs to try to get some more direct observations and, and get, hopefully, catch them eating the fruit, which they did. Um, the frogs kind of uh, will try to make a little hole or find a hole that's already in a fruit and kind of suck the pulp out, that's kind of the, what they oh, tend to do. Okay. Yeah, because they can't obviously snap at it with their tongues sure. exactly the same way. Makes if sense. it's a big fruit, they're very small frogs. Right. So they saw them eating the fruit. However, they found something that they did not expect, which was even more unusual. Ooh. Not tell only me, tell me, tell me. not only was the frog eating fruit regularly, they observed it entering the flowers of a particular tree, the Brazilian milk fruit tree, head first. Uh -huh. Okay. And sucking sucking All nectar right. from the flower. What? Wow. Yeah. I assume they're maybe pollinating it then at the same time? Well, possibly. They were also observed cool. eating, eating the flowers of another plant. But yeah, so for the frog that ate the nectar, the scientists noticed that when the frogs climbed out of the flower, it had, uh, they had some pollen stuck to their backs. Yeah. And, you know, potentially, oh, cool. potentially this frog is in fact the only known amphibian pollinator in the entire world. Yes! That is Oh, rad. I'm so excited. Oh. oh, that's so fun. <laughs> Amphibian pollinator. Victoria, cool. you don't even know how excited I am that this is <laughs> this week's episode and not next week's. Because, oh, oh, just wait. Oh, yeah. Ah. Oh, I, I can't. Chef's I'm kiss. excited. <laughs> Wonderful. My topic has nothing to do <laughs> with frogs or pollination. But okay, cool. Great. Um, they have also looked at the frog scat and they've discovered that it does have a role in seed dispersal as well. So it's really, really working with the plants here. Oh, nice. nice. Um, that's also unique yeah. for an amphibian. That's the only known amphibian who works as a seed disperser. Awesome. Absolutely yeah, there's wild. There's still a lot. <laughs> it is. It's so, so strange. Um, there's still a lot to find out about this frog. It's a near threatened uh, because of habitat of loss. Of course. Of course. of course. And so is that particular tree that I mentioned as well. Um, and, you know, for instance, we don't know if the pollen that is carried on the frog's back is still viable or if 
The frog's somewhat mm, toxic mm-hmm. skin muca- mucus somehow destroys it. So potential pollinator. Potential pollinator, yeah. We don't know for sure. More research yeah. needs to be done. We also, in fact, don't know what evolutionary pressures led the frog to have such an unusual diet in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I haven't seen any speculation about that in the papers I was looking at. Yeah, so that's it's kind of a short and sweet episode for me today. That's that's really all I have about the frog. I just thought it was super cool and wanted to share it. That is very cool. Awesome. That is super cool. My sources today are the Burke Museum, a paper from Foodwebs in June 2023 called Between Fruits, Flowers, and Nectar, the Extraordinary Diet of the Frog Xenohyla Truncata, and the New York Times. And uh, we are going to take a short break. And when we come back, it'll be Kirk. Hey, before we get back to the show, uh, you know, there was that last story you just had there was all about Brazil. And I remembered we got a comment through the Podbean app uh, from one of our listeners who's in Brazil, who've heard from uh, before, Homem Salamandro, uh, who says, there's nothing more universal to biology nerds than willingly looking into something disturbing or sorry, disgusting and going, oh, God, that's horrible. Why did I want to learn that? And this is with. Uh, multiple question marks and exclamation points, and then says, I need to send this to my friend. Yes. And that, oh, that is a, indeed. so much. Uh, it happens to <laughs> so me true. all the time. <laughs> this is horrifying. Who can I share this with? I feel like that's sort of what this podcast <laughs> is all about. This is horrifying. <laughs> Who can I, I share this with? Let's and share we're sharing it with, it with all so of you. Many so <laughs> To be fair, thank not... Thank you, everyone, for being there. Not everything we... we share on the show is horrifying but a significant that's chunk. true it's also fascinating or yeah. wonderful yes um and my my topic coming up in just a moment is neither uh isn't horrifying at all uh although some people may find it disturbing in one particular way but we'll find out what it is cannot Intrig- wait intriguing there kirk All right, everybody, we're back. Uh, This week, you'll be either delighted or disappointed to find that I am not talking about a parasite. Oh, I'm delighted. There have been so many parasites lately. Kind of gotten into a parasite groove. I know. I'm going to focus on a plant. So I'm going to talk about the uh, tamarick aphila. Uh, Now, this is a plant that doesn't grow here where we record in Minnesota. I mean, it can. You could plant it in your garden, but it's not something you find, you know, growing much in the wild. It may be familiar to some of our listeners, though. It's native to Eurasia, and it's considered an invasive species here in the U.S. You may know it by one of two common names, either the tamarisk or the salt cedar. Oh, my gosh. Kirk, it's a good thing I didn't choose this for my episode this week, because I was definitely considering it. it? Yes. Ooh, so close. I have Uh, no idea what's happening. Well, let me go ahead. Near miss. I'm going to go on a little mini rant here. This is yet another plant that someone saw and went, oh, look. A plant that stays green in the winter, like a cedar. Let's just call it a cedar. Ah. Drives me crazy. Eastern red cedar, white cedar. We're obsessed with calling plants cedar that aren't cedars. Like mm-hmm. red and white cedars are junipers. Junipers. And salt cedar is a tamarisk. And so while I'm with a rant here, also an American robin isn't a robin. It's a thrush. Ah. Right. Common yep. names just suck. Having Anyhow, seen a European uh, robin, tamarisks. they look nothing alike. Yeah, yeah very like different American body robin, shape. An American robin is a thrush. A thrush. Anyways, um, 
So there's a bunch of things about these plants that make them interesting and weird. Uh, as I mentioned, it is invasive. It was introduced to the U.S. back in like the 1800s. And uh, maybe it's some of a landscaping plant, but also uh, for erosion control. And it is uh, listed as a noxious weed now uh, from Texas to South Dakota and all the way out to Washington State and California, pretty much everywhere in between. And so what makes this evergreen uh, interesting and unusual? Much like other invasive noxious species, the plants grow in dense stands that shade out native species. Tamarisk are also incredibly thirsty. Uh, they can blow through an enormous amount of water, which seems bizarre, as they have scale foliage and not leaves. And I would think like large leaf plants would transpire and transpiring is like, breathing out moisture through their leaves uh, faster than a plant with scale needles. But apparently uh, a stand of tamarisk blows through so much water, they can actually lower the water table making it inaccessible to native okay. plants. Okay. As you can imagine, uh, no longer having access to water is a pretty big problem for other plants, but things get worse from there. I mentioned that tamarisk is also called the salt cedar because they concentrate salt in their scales, the green part, right? Not their, they're, they're not leaves, they're scales. And when those scales drop to the ground, it makes the soil saltier and plants, famously, most plants don't like to grow in salty soil. So actually, like, it discourages other plants from growing around them. Millions of dollars are spent each year in an attempt to eradicate tamarisk from the American landscape. So this is clearly a bad, nasty plant, right? Mm -hmm. uh, well, maybe well, not. Okay. Maybe not. I'll say invasives get a really bad rap because we see them as out-competing native plants and changing the landscape. But the true complexities of nature are never that simple. And we're going to take buckthorn, for example. It's one that I know really well from here in Minnesota. I'm sure mm -hmm. lots of places our listeners are also have this uh, invasive tree. And it also grows so dense that it crowds out and shades out native plants. It doesn't get very big around. So it doesn't make amazing habitat. Basically, it's, it's like too small for woodpeckers to make good nest cavities in. And if you don't have those holes, there's not holes for other animals to be in. So it, well, it's it so helps, dense, it just, too. It's not a great tree species. Yeah, exactly. That density really stops, shades out all the you know, sunlight from the forest floor. So really nothing but that can grow. It also has this amazing ability to send out poison or toxins through its roots to help keep other species away. And... Much like tamarisk, it's difficult to get rid of as it's such, such a strong plant. It's such a resilient plant. If you cut it down, it just mm -hmm. whoop, grows right back. And the same is true for tamarisk. And I think it's easy to understand that part of the reason invasives do so well is that they're actually super well adapted. Uh, there was a cool study that came out mm -hmm. recently that shows that the likely reason salt cedars store salt on their scales is that salt is hydrophilic, meaning it absorbs water. So if you have salty uh, leaves or needles, that means you can literally pull water from the air to help you survive in a drought. That is a pretty damn cool adaptation. That's for a really plant to cool. Have. We yeah. all agree Kirk, with that, right? It's it's yeah. actually even better than that. I because I was looking into this topic and considering yeah. doing this. Yeah. Um, more from the angle of the the excreting salt than the invasive species, but I hadn't sure. dug into it much yet. Um, but what this study showed was not just that it excretes salt from its leaves, but it transforms the salt into a particular form that is especially 
water, water loving, hydrophilic. Yeah, especially hydrophilic. Yeah, I, I'm going to all like the the weeds yeah. on it. <laughs> no, no pun intended. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like it is, <laughs> it is like super adapted to the environment, right? So there's a mystery at play though when it comes to something like that because you have these seemingly super adapted plants, but they're outsiders. They're not originally from here. So why is it that they thrive here so well and can outcompete our native plants that have been evolving here and competing here for tens of thousands of years in some cases or hundreds of thousands of years in some parts of the, of the country? And yeah, they don't have maybe some animals that eat them and whatnot, but it just doesn't sort of make sense in my brain that they would be better adapted than the plants that have been here adapting to this environment for thousands of years. And the key revelation in my mind is that the invasives aren't competing with natives that have been in this habitat for thousands of years. Hmm. They are competing with natives that have found themselves in a changed habitat. So here in Minnesota, for example, in other states that huh. have buckthorn problems, non-native earthworms were introduced to the soil. And these, the trees that evolved here lived in soil that hasn't had earthworms since the end of the last ice age, essentially since that soil was created 13,000 right. years ago. Um, and now that the earthworms are here, the buckthorn, which is from forests that have had earthworms for a long time, are basically better adapted to the current state of the habitat, not the historical state of it. So they're winning because they already have the correct adaptation for the present conditions. And we, we likely need to change our thinking on this. It, it isn't that buckthorn is muscling into an existing habitat and forcing out trees that were already perfectly adapted to it but rather the old species are dying out as they don't have the right adaptations for the new forest. And so new species are moving in and taking advantage of that. And it seems like the same thing is true of tamarisk. The Southwest United States has changed dramatically since the 1800s. We've yeah. dammed the rivers is the, you know, a big, huge mm -hmm. thing, but also climate change has made it hotter and drier. And some researchers and ecologists are starting to change their minds about the salt cedar. And thinking that it isn't that it's out-competing natives like cottonwoods. Research has shown that when uh, natural levels of water are present, historic species like cottonwoods thrive and have no trouble pushing out the salt cedars because they're in their, like, proper habitat that is acting the way it should. Right. Uh, I will say, by the way, tam tamarisk's ability to lower water tables because they're so thirsty, that may be a bit of an urban legend to vilify the plants. So some of the researchers okay. have looked at it have gone, no, nah, they, don't, they don't really do that. So we know that natives should be able to hold their own or even push salt cedars out. But the trouble is the natural cycle of floods and drought are gone once we put the dams in. And the water that is held back is used for cities and farms and golf courses and all that. And salt cedar is doing so well because it is ideally adapted to the current conditions that we have created. It may actually be a better plant to have growing than some of the natives that simply aren't up to the task of living in a landscape that we've radically changed. So we loathe the salt cedar and we heap scorn on it when we probably should be looking in the mirror instead. Uh, oh, we brought it yeah. here and we created the conditions that have allowed it to spread and thrive. And interestingly, uh, while it is being eradicated most places where it's found, or at least they're attempting to eradicate it, in Arizona, there's this bit of a, like, kind of struggle going on because mm -hmm. they found out that the endangered southwestern willow flycatcher, which is a bird, uh, yep. actually uses salt cedar as nesting locations. Oh. So 
<laughs> I mean, now that's good. tension. Yeah, it's like, hey, the climate has changed. We've taken the water away. Salt cedars are doing really well here. Some of the native plants aren't doing as well. And this endangered species is using these salt cedars. And you want to go in and plow those down and, and, and destroy them. Like, that's going to make, that could potentially make this bird go extinct. So, nature is really complicated, it turns yeah. out. Um, yeah. When new species come into an area, things are always messy. And ultimately, ultimately, we know nature is going to sort things out. Some species will thrive, others will fade, but it isn't pretty to watch. On a geologic no. timescale, plant communities change rapidly. But watching that process, mourning the losers, and feeling responsible for the change, it's an uncomfortable place to be. And unfortunately, it's a place we find ourselves more and more. Yeah. Not real cheerful, but uh, <laughs> kind of interesting, I think, to think about. Yeah. Uh, my sources this week were Smithsonian Magazine, the National Park Service, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Yeah, it's a, it's a really thought-provoking way to think about invasive species. And it's, yeah. it's kind of similar to that episode I did a little while back about mm-hmm. uh, earthworm-disturbed forests and, um, yeah. Buckthorn, and garlic, mustard, garlic well. mustard. Yeah, yeah. And absolutely. I think yeah. I covered yeah, buckthorn way early too of like Oh just a long time ago, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like it they are very fascinating for sure. And it's definitely like we we just don't we're the ones who caused it, so we want to fix the problem. But nature's already right. trying to fix the problem and sorting it all out and we just Yeah. The change it's is hard. It's real messy. Yeah, it's messy. Well, we just got to be comfortable with uh, the mess here, I guess. And we'll take a little break. We'll come right back. And Rachel, do you have something messy for us? Mm-mm. No. <laughs> the question was <laughs> out of the blue. All right, we'll find out. Here we go. All right. Welcome back, everyone. Get ready, because I think this is one of my favorite topics I've ever done. This oh oh wow mg okay. Rachel that's <laughs> okay. a big claim. Uh, you'll understand why in just a little bit. All right, is this so, better than the oh, than the suspense. throat fungus? Ooh, the throat oh, the fungus throat was fungus. tragic. That one was rough. Yeah, Ugh, <laughs> gross, wild. Anyway, um, this is much cheerier. So Kirk got us uh, in a little bit of a low moment, existential as he tends to. Uh, Mine is kind of, it's a new discovery. So plants. Many plants that are, that we're trying. Many plants that are on earth have some sort of pollen. Uh, The angiosperms, uh, even gymnosperms can have, well, they have, some pollen but it's like a cone thing it's weird but we're going to focus on angiosperms for a minute because most most of them all of them have some sort of pollen which needs to be exchanged which is the process of pollination right victoria you were talking about the pollination which is why i got so excited because i'm sort of talking about pollination anyway like earlier in this episode, which we've talked about some of the wild mechanics um, of pollination and pollinators in general. We've also yeah. talked about some wild seed dispersal methods on this show. Oh, yeah. Uh, yes. Cougars. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you two, uh, Kirk and Victoria, 
what are some ways plants get pollen from A to B? What are some of those mechanisms of pollination? Wind. Oh, first one that comes to mind. Yeah, wind. For any allergy sufferers, we know that one pretty yeah. well. Insects mm-hmm. and other pollinators, such as frogs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> frogs, yeah. Yep, birds, like frogs. bats. <laughs> yeah, birds, bats, butterflies, beetles, mm-hmm. uh, wasps. Especially beetles. Oh, yeah. I'll do my yeah. little plug and point out that beetles pollinate something like 89% of all flowering plants on Earth. Yep. The bees get all the credit. It's the beetles, people. I, yeah, That's right. I, workshop I went to at the professional conference Kirk and I were at uh, like a couple of weeks ago, or I guess it was a couple of weeks ago now. Um, yeah. The presenter mentioned that if we didn't have any beetle species on the planet, like we'd last three months. Maybe this is a tall claim, <laughs> oh, but oh. anyway, you're supposed anyway. to have a cheerful episode here, Rachel. What? Just, just wait. Okay. okay. So those are some other ones. So we have wind, <laughs> we have animals, fauna, any yeah. other methods? Uh, humans. Oh, humans. Oh, interesting. Right. Okay. I, I can count that with animals, but yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, their water pollination. I, is that a thing? Great question. Maybe for some water plants. Yeah, because I mean, my I know next question. Some fungi definitely use water for pollination. Yeah, well, uses pollination. You know what I mean? For spreading spores. Moss. Yeah. Okay. Great question, Victoria. Because what do plants in the ocean do? Because there right. are, they are flowering plants in the ocean. Are there? There are flowering like, plants they in the ocean. Flower underwater? Mm-hmm. Or at Wait. the surface? Are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> what flowering pa- plants never, are in the ocean? I've never heard of a flowering plant in the well, ocean. This is okay. awesome. It might not be like the ones that I'm mostly talking about today are grasses. So they're not flowers in the traditional sense of a flower, but sure. they do yeah, flower and produce. Of- Pollen. You know, hydrangea underwater or something. Right. They produce pollen. Right, so seagrass. Cool. Okay. Mm-hmm. So yeah. what do they use? All right. Water? Fish? <laughs> yeah, fish? Little yeah, bubbles? Um, cr- crustaceans? I love where we're all Aquatic going with this. insects? Beautiful. Most plants in we the wrong? ocean, we're going to learn, is going to be so fun. It, I'm just so excited because I got sent this by a friend of mine. Uh, I got this sent. I got sent this like three times. It was amazing. Uh, so most plants in the water uh, use the water flow, the current, and everything to transport pollen from one to the other. Very similar to how most plants on land use wind, right? Uh, especially right, yes. the in the of ocean. Wind, yeah. Exactly, and the process of using water to pollinate is called hydrophily. Uh, And unlike on land, animals in the ocean don't have much of a hand in pollination. Or do they? (gasps) Researchers from the National Autonomous University of Mexico have found something amazing. Now, this is a two-party two-part type system thing that's happening, which is very exciting because this uh, original study came out in 2016. They were studying these crustaceans and this turtle seagrass. It was Thalacia testudium. 
from 2009 to 2012. They were taking videos and watching the crustaceans um, in their like spring migration seeing or not migration, but spring nocturnal wanderings, checking out the um, okay. the crustaceans that were there, and they. Yeah, by the way, that found, sounds fantastic. Spring nocturnal wanderings. Right. <laughs> so new That's band fun. name. Okay. So from 2009 to 2012, they were watching these videos and taking videos of these crustaceans just to figure out what they were doing, right, in this turtle sea grass. Uh -huh. yeah. And they found that these little crustaceans hung out at the flowers of, this is what they called them, was the flowers of the turtle sea grass. Okay. But they tended to visit the male flowers that had more, more pollen than visiting wow. flowers that didn't. Oh. And then okay. they were, as they continued to watch the videos, they even found some of these crustaceans carrying pollen. Oh, okay. <laughs> wow. Okay. Now, we this have is... amphibian pollinator and crustacean pollinators. Yes! So this is the first instance of animal uh, pollination happening in the ocean. Most scientific thought has wow. been about like that pollination, animal-led, fauna-led pollination developed on land. Once everything was on land, things changed, right? Like we always think about the progression of oh, plants on land. Okay. Uh, that they went from like yeah, yeah. moss to more like the gymnosperms to the flowering plants. But this mm -hmm. puts us into perspective. And finally, of, we have animals helping with pollination. Exactly. And now this is like, well, it didn't have to develop on land. It could have happened in the ocean before anything was on land. Um, and they uh, haven't, it's been a variety. And they obviously, they checked. Um, so the scientists at this university the researchers, uh, they did do, and I will give them credit uh, in a little bit, they did do an experiment. They brought, to try to figure out what this relationship was, what they did was they brought some of the seagrass out and they had these little crustaceans in a tank. They set up a tank with no pollination, with no like water or anything like that to see if the... Um, crustaceans would go to because there's these little globules it's not like a traditional flower it's like this little goopy mass of pollen that okay. crustaceans can mm. grab to like eat a little bit and then move on to a next mm. part okay. of a new plant Yum. right so they set up these aquariums to see if there was any sort of pollen transfer happening and within minutes plants that had no pollen had pollen in an in a an aquarium where there was no uh like flow of water or anything like that so it wasn't water led it was okay. could only be done with the crustaceans awesome. and wow, amazing so cool it's so cool now this led <laughs> to remember i said that there's two parts to this because as i was researching and looking into this they found another instance of this happening in 2022. Of course. Oh. So. Cool. Uh, Again, with the same species? Different or animal? Or? Different, 
This is in a different animal in a different part of the ocean. So the first one that was <sighs> oh, happening, the first study covered was covered uh, the turtle seagrass in the Caribbean Sea area. Someone, mm-hmm. there was a scientist okay. who read, uh, who read about the the. I'm going to tell you what they're calling them colloquially because it's a bunch of different crustaceans. It's not just one species over there in the Caribbean Sea. They're calling them sea bees. Okay. (laughs) Oh, as we know, it should be called sea beetles, right? Come on. Okay. Yes. Credit sea beetles. Sea beetles. That's fair, but like sea bees is right there, Kirk. It's cute. It's cute. It's so cute. Hence why it's one of my favorite things. So one of the authors, Miriam Valerio, she had read the article about the turtle seagrass, which is very, very exciting. And then she's like, hmm, I study this red algae all the way in a different part of the world. I wonder if this happens to my algae. So it's a type of uh, red seaweed as well, and it grows in tide pools. So this is very... different space very different yeah but algae doesn't have pollen this one apparently does and they were able to uh yeah so it's not like the traditional it's a type of algae that is often found in growing um like in like tide pools and everything but it does have pollen. this particular species i guess has pollen they're saying it pollinates, but it can't really be pollen pollen. It has to be like some other... It's not the type of pollen that fertilization we think of. Thing. It's like pollination, but it's not actually literally pollen. Because only plants make pollen. Right. Weird. Right? You've brought us so many strange, strange things this week, Rachel. You're welcome. But what's <laughs> wild is like it... They also call it red seaweed. So they kind of go back and forth. It looks more like seaweed than it does look like algae to me. Well, seaweed so, what? typically is a type of algae. Well, there we go. Fabulous. Yeah, it's, it's, seaweed is one of those things that doesn't fit in our nice, neat little boxes. Yeah, it's, we'll it's an algae, it but it's point. macroscopic, multicellular. Okay. Bizarre. Yeah. Fabulous. Anyway, they were able to find that there was a crustacean, this little tiny like bug that they they called it a bug. It is not a bug. <laughs> it is wow. a it is a bug like crustacean. It's called oh god. Uh Idotia <laughs> bathica. Yep. Okay. Okay. And it does pollinate the red seaweed. And it looks kind of cute. It looks like a little crustacean, like a little tiny shrimp. It's really fun. Amazing. But cool. a different type of the world. So it's been ha- it's happened in multiple locations and it's totally blown apart what we thought we knew because uh, plants didn't move onto the shore until 450 million years ago. So if that's been happening since red algae was a thing, which uh, the... The fossil record shows that it's been around for over 800 million years. Okay. 
That's what? <laughs> anyway, so this is truly astonishing, amazing thing that was sent to me. By far one of my favorite things to talk about is both the ocean and pollination and bees. So, <laughs> hence my favorite topic. It's, it's got everything. It's got everything. Everything you're looking for. So my sources this week, uh, there was the paper that from 2016, Experimental Evidence of Pollination in Marine Flowers by Invertebrate Fauna uh, in the Nature Communications Journal by T- Van Tussenbrook, Villamini, Villa Mill, and Solis Weiss, uh, which is an open access journal. You can read this paper if you want to. Um, I also had a really lovely article about the more recent one, uh, discovery in the Smithsonian Magazine, as well as uh, Science Alert. Awesome. Wow, yeah. cool. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you. So that's been my topic this week. That's all I got. That was enough. <laughs> all right. <laughs> All right. So well, it was great to have us all back together. Thanks for uh, bringing all this delightfully strange and interesting stuff uh, for our listeners. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. everyone, for listening. We will see you Thank next you. week. Bye. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of The Strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace The Strange.